Welcome to Essential Ethics, brought to you by the Children's Bioethics Centre at the Royal Children's Hospital. I am your host, Professor John Massey, Medical Director of the Children's Bioethics Centre. In this podcast, we present a session from the 2019 National Children's Bioethics Conference called Ethical Considerations Around Parents' Decisions to Choose Blended Food for Tube Feeding for Their Child. The session starts with a presentation from Dr Heather Gilbertson, Manager of Nutrition and Food Services at Royal Children's Hospital, and Ms Karen Costa and Ms Rachel Martin, Dietitians from the Royal Children's Hospital. The presentation is followed by a lively discussion with Bernadette O'Connor, Director of Allied Health at Royal Children's Hospital, and myself. The discussion is moderated by Professor Lynn Gillam, Academic Director of the Children's Bioethics Centre. Hello everyone, thank you for joining us this afternoon. We are here today to represent the, well Karen and myself are here today to represent the parents' perspective when it comes to the choice of choosing to choosing to feed your child with blended diet. Um, with the, our role within the Complex Care Hub and as well as the team leaders for the RCH HEN program, this has been a conversation that's been brewing for a number of years, but really this year it's hit its peak. And so we're here today to hopefully have a, a really robust discussion with you all. So what we're going to start with is what, what are we doing now? So... The current management of enteral nutrition and enterally fed patients is we use the gold standard, which is commercially prepared formulas. They are usually uh, nutritionally complete within a specific volume. They rarely cause tube blockages. They are easy to prepare. Um, either they come in a powder or are ready to feed liquid form. And they're easier to administer and they're sterile. Um, but... Lately, as I mentioned, it's really not since the 70s has there been such a big discussion around how to enterally feed patients, not just children, but adults as well. So in the, the, more and more parents are wanting to include real foods or whole foods um, for the benefit and the well-being of their child, um, but also they find that the alternatives that they're offered are not acceptable to them or to their beliefs. But we find that we have governing bodies that either have no statement or recommend against this practice. So we've found ourselves as dietitians in a situation where parents would choose one way to feed their child, but we're advocating for another. So today we're going to be talking about this topic of blended tube feeds, the various perspectives. So of course the parent perspective, but also from a profession point of view, but hopefully get some discussion happening to try and come up with some sort of solution. So we're going to talk about just hen and enteral nutrition in itself, go through some of the, the parents' perspectives that, perspectives that we hear, our own perspectives, and then how we're managing outpatient and inpatient enterally fed patients at the RCH. I'll hand over to Karen. Thanks, Rach. So we know that the scientific literature regarding um, blended diets is emerging, but the practice of blended diets is widespread and it's on the increase. And health professionals are often criticised for being behind the times. Families want dietitian advice on how to do this properly and are frustrated with in the inconsistent response from professionals. The practice of blended tube feeds is happening. You can see just by a quick Google search, it's like 150,000 points hits straight away. If you go to YouTube, you can see every recipe under the sun. And this is, at the moment, how parents are getting information. 
So the USA have led the way in blended diets, and it's often due to necessity rather than desire. So the way the natural feeds are funded, and Heather will go into more detail about how it's funded in Victoria, but in the States it's quite different. So in the States, families don't have funding for their formula. So they're kind of pushed into a different, um, into a different corner in that they have to come up with their own solutions. Through the rise in the internet, parents in Australia are finding support from parent-driven forums, Facebook groups, tube feeding organisations, naturopaths, and my favourite, the celebrity chef. You can find every uh, way to prepare foods online. So the question is, should families have to resort to YouTube to get clinical nutrition advice for their tube-fed child? And also, are these social media groups skewed to the positive? So, you know, you see the Facebook group, you read about it, everybody loves it. It's amazing. You will hear the benefits that that child has come across being on the blended diet. But what you don't hear is the child that tried it and failed. Or you don't hear the child that's on it, but their growth chart is failing. So we, we're in a tricky position. So, and up until now, the RCH dietitians have been unable to provide nutrition advice if a family chooses to give their child a blended tube diet. Unlike some hospitals, our BTFs, or blended tube-fed patients, can remain on the RCH HEN program, and they receive the same funding and their equipment like anybody else. But we don't offer a dietetic service in regards to the blended tube feed composition or preparation. I'm going to hand over to Heather to catch you up to speed on exactly what we're talking about. Um, so I'm just going to go back to basics, assuming there might be some people in the audience that have never heard of enteral feeding and hen. So enteral feeding is the delivery of nutrition directly into the stomach, the duodenum or the jejunum via an enteral feeding tube. So it might be a nasogastric or a gastrostomy. So in terms of who needs enteral feeds, we're looking at... Um, individuals with high energy needs like kids with cystic fibrosis. It may be um, individuals with poor oral intake like they might have cancer or feeding difficulties or cardiac babies that just can't eat enough and need a top up. Individuals with complex needs um, that might have special therapeutic formula as well or individuals who are just not safe to swallow so they might have cerebral palsy or other sort of disabilities. Our HEN program, which you've heard referred to, stands for Home Enteral Nutrition. We have about um, 650 families on our HEN program at the Royal Children's Hospital. And in Victoria, each health service receives state funding to fund patients who require this nutrition support at home. So this includes the formula and all the equipment required for each individual that meets the eligibility criteria for the program, um, which usually means being managed by that health service. Um, there are also a number of drivers that determine formula choice within each health service, which um, is important to understand as well. And one of those big ones is HPV. So Victorian health services are mandated to purchase formula from an enteral feeding contract that's managed by Health Purchasing Victoria. So when we choose our formula, um, we need to know what feeds are on this contract. But there's also a whole range of other considerations that different health services use, and I've listed quite a few there but it depends on the need, on the storage, on the sort of facilities that the health service has. Do they have to have ready to feed because they don't have a special formula room or is there a formula room on site that can mix um, powdered feeds? So there's a whole range of reasons why different health services choose particular feeds. 
So if we go back to blended diet, um, as you heard, there is an increased interest in the use of blended diets for tube feeding. This might be blending whole food and providing via an enteral feeding tube, either as a replacement, you know, maybe as simple as just putting a custard down the tube, or as a supplement to, um, to commercially prepared enteral feeding formulas. One of the highest risks about blended foods is that there are high risk for contamination for food safety. Um, bacteria require four main conditions to thrive, water, food, temperature, particularly warmth and time. And given these conditions, bacteria will multiply every 10 to 20 minutes to the extent to cause food poisoning. And um, blended foods are high moisture content and so the highest risk. And on top of that, they're using blenders which are really, really hard to clean. Like I think about the extent that our food service department goes to to clean the blender. When you pull it all apart, it's really, um, you know, there's, there's lots of nooks and crannies for bacterial growth. Now, food poisoning, um, it is a very real statistic. So I'm just wondering, um, does, does anyone want to stand up who's had food poisoning in their life before? Just quickly stand up and we can show who's had food poisoning. That is the majority. <laughs> now, I want you to stay standing if you reported it to the Department of Health. OK, so we have one person who reported it. And I guess these stats that I've got there are the ones that are reported cases. So it just shows you to what extent food poisoning actually occurs. So um, the other thing we do is we're actually, um, as health professionals, need to be guided by our governing bodies. So DAA is our Dietitian Association of Australia, and they've got guidelines on the use of blended diet. They say homemade tube feeding formula made from whole foods with a blender are usually not recommended. Preparation can be time consuming and many recipes are likely to cause tube blockage and tube deterioration, are often not nutritionally complete and pose a markedly increased risk of bacterial contamination. We also look at guidelines from um, the British Dietetic Association and they also don't recommend the administration of liquidised food via enteral feeding tube. Um, they say the use of this mode of feeding poses particular risks to infants that are under six months, dejunally fed patients and patients that are immunocompromised, and that if an individual is considering the use of liquidised food, the dietitian has a duty of care to ensure that they have all the individualised information they need to enable them to make a fully informed choice. We also look to the European guidelines and they also don't encourage it because of the risk of nutritional inadequacy and microbial contamination. And then we go to the North American guidelines where all of this is happening and they actually don't specify anything in their guidelines about it at all. So as health professionals, we also need to be guided by evidence-based best practice. And when we go to the literature and see what's there, I think we'll find that there's equally um, evidence for as well as evidence against. It is emerging, um, but you see a lot of evidence that you know families report reduced vomiting, retching, gagging. Um, there is bacterial diversity because they're getting a more varied diet and certainly greater carer satisfaction and they feel like it's normalising the eating even though their child is having it through a tube. 
But in terms of the risks or the cons, obviously um, some studies have reported they need twice the amount of energy intake to maintain the weight in comparison, which means double the volume that sometimes kids don't tolerate. The macronutrient and micronutrient composition can be variable. You can see time consuming and it's also costly, particularly for families that can get formula for free versus they're now buying all these foods to make their own. There's obviously the food safety risks that um, are very real. Um, so they're some of the things that are um, to, to bring you up to speed with where we're at from health professional point of view as well. So I'll hand over to the Rachel. Me again. So now we're going to move into the to what what we hear from parents. So Karen and I, as I said, we work a lot with the families who are inquiring and looking to this mode of feeding for their child, whether they already are or they're starting to explore this as an option. Um, so it's, it's something that we see as complex care, but also the hen leaders. So we have heard parents over the phone, face-to-face, -face, um, sort of spouting the positives of blended tube feeds. And, and as Karen mentioned, because there is such a positive spin out there that parents feel like it is a solution for a lot of things that their child has as well. So we're going to present to you the voice of the parent. Um, some of what we are presenting um, is directly from RCH parents that we see, but some of it has come from a, a British study, or UK study by Sarah Dernan, who was, it was focused on the parents' views and the parents' voices. Um, it was published in BAPIN, and we've left the, the um, reference there for you. And it was presented recently at the ESPGAN conference. And also Antonio Trollope's paper from last month's Nutrition and Clinical Practice is also um, credited in this part of the, the talk. But the themes and the sentiments in these papers are the same as what we see here at RCH, so it's all relevant. So the literature is suggesting that there is concern around the microbial safety, the nutritional adequacy of a blended tube feed. But there is also shows that there can be benefits to the patients. Um, and so the most reported improvements we hear, but also what's in the literature, is improvements in GI symptoms. Um, and so to us as clinicians, if the patients tend to be better within themselves, then that's a good thing, but it's not yet an evidence-based practice. So in all the research done to date, you know, it's looking at, is it unsafe, is it substandard, but there's benefits and they're finding those things emerging in these results, but there is a lack of evidence, so we proceed with caution. But quite often in all of this, the parent's voice is missing. So there are three themes that we're going through and we've grouped the parent perspectives into three themes. The first one to talk about is on the well-being of the child. So these are some direct quotes that um, are from either RCH parents or from the studies that we've referenced. Um, but the one that resonated to me was the what happened to patient-centred decisions. Um, and that's something that we hear quite often in various ways, but it's the same theme. Um, and working within the complex care model, that's the core of their practice, is patient-centred care. And the, what if the parent's goal for their child is blended tube feeds, but that's opposed to the directions of our governing body? And what if that child transitions to blended tube feeds and they are better and their GI symptoms are better controlled, needing less medications or none at all, and they continue to grow and they're nutritionally okay, isn't that okay? But we're not supported by the evidence nor our governing bodies. So we're sort of in a conundrum, I suppose, in that sense. 
And the comment that resonates with me with regard to the wellbeing of the child is the orange one, where the parent feels let down by the health professional. So if she'd been on a proper food, meaning a blended diet, could I have kept a job down instead of packing in work to care for her? And I think there's a lot wrapped up in that. So this is more than just nutrition. This is often about grief, regret, acceptance, um, and maybe even sort of acceptance of their condition in general. So we find that nutrition is often a common theme that everybody can relate to, but there's often a lot of uh, other issues tied up into um, conversations about nutrition. The next theme we explored a bit further with regard to parental comment was empowerment. And um, professional support and parental <coughs> empowerment are linked again in this slide. And from my highlight is the red quote. And this is from the, um, the UK study where they were um, surveying parents. She said it would be nice to have true support and, and they investigated what that meant. And it said, um, some families get good nutrition advice from their dietitians and others feel forced to go online and figure it out for themselves. My poor dietitian is just so worried that she's not giving me any advice, so I had to go and make guesses myself. So if the parents aren't happy, they're going to YouTube. The dietitians feel trapped. Um, the child is placed at great risk because the parents are guessing, is that a nutritionally complete formula? They're guessing about how to do something hygienically. I think we can agree when it comes to, um, to that comment. I don't think anyone's winning. Along the theme I spoke about on the previous slide, um, parents also tell us that they're tired of defending their choice um, and the choice that they have already made. Um, often the decision to go down this path of blended tube feeds is something that they've considered, that they've researched, and their research may be social media and those forums, but it's still something that they're considering. Um, and they look at all the arguments and the pros and cons, but they still choose to go ahead with it. So then where do we come in to help them and support with this? We know that most parents, and I say that within quotation marks, know how to best feed their child, but we also know some don't. But we can allow parents to have a more positive role in their child's life if we can support them with this. We hear parents talking about how it's nice to feel like their mum, not their nurse, that they're able to cook up a meal that might be their favourite. The child may not be able to communicate that, but in some way the parent can register that there's some pleasure with something different, and that's rewarding to the parent. A lot of parents feel like, yes, it is more labour-intensive, but I don't care because I'm doing something to help my child. I get some control back. It's not as medicalised because I get to choose what I put in there. They get to choose what health foods that they think have a benefit for their child. And in that sense, the parent you know, feels like they're having more of a sense in the control and the wellbeing of their child. The other third theme, the last theme, is that this can often lead to a normalisation of, of a family's life, not just the patient or the parent, but the unit, the family as a whole. Caregivers and parents tell us that their, their family activities and mealtimes will feel more normal when their child has a blended tube feed. This can be interpreted in several ways, um, and, and even if a child is on commercial formula, they can probably still feel like they're part of the mealtimes, but it's something about the food being fed to the child that gives them that social inclusion. Um, their family meal times are, are, are social, they're, they're positive and they're interactive, but it's also not just the day-to-day -day things. It's, sometimes it's important for families to feel like their child is part of a celebration or a festive type of season. And we are at a talk recently where one of the dietitians mentioned a family just wanted their child to enjoy 
an Easter egg at Easter time, and they put that through the tube. And that's all they wanted. But they just want their child to be involved in something like that. And we often see that around Christmas time and birthdays as well. And so it just gives them that little bit of sense of inclusion. Um, and, and parents often report that the child's happier because everyone else is happier, that they're having the same foods as everybody else. And if everybody else is healthy and well, then can't that be a good thing for their child? So it's a real dilemma as well for us because we get stuck with where do we go? And we sort of get, we're sort of the meat in the middle sometimes, so to speak. <laughs> so as health professionals, where do we stand? So we, we have families currently providing blended tube feeds for their children and their child is thriving. We have absolutely no doubt that some families do it well. Some families can figure out a nutritionally complete diet. Some families can do it with the highest of hygiene standards and the child grows beautifully. They may have less presentations to ED because they're not refluxing as much, they're not aspirating their feed. So there's lots of um, economic benefits as well from a health perspective. But we also see families who provide blended chewed feeds to the child's detriment. And I think um, we need to be really careful about not just listening to the positive voice because we have a responsibility to protect the children at the other end as well. So although we want to hear and respond to those at that end of the spectrum, the balance of our duty of care has swung up until now toward those most at risk. So are we bound by a national governance body that says this is not recommended? Are we bound by our hospital guidelines that say you can't bring blended tube feeds into this hospital? Are we bound by our duty of care? Does that overrule all of that, that if families are doing this anyway, and they're going to ground and learning about how to make a nutritionally complete feed from YouTube. How do I, as a dietitian, stand and think that that's got to be a better option? So what, does my duty of care overrule those things? And then we come down to our personal views. And I think Rachel and I would like a dollar for every time a family said to us, yeah, but wouldn't you do it? <laughs> so families are doing this and the need to support that it's implemented safely and nutritionally adequate is, I feel like, at the forefront. So in response to a lot of the parent feedback and conversations and time invested in discussions around blended tube feeds, the department and the RCH, or Nutrition and Food Services I suppose, are now starting to come up with resources and ways to provide support to families on how best to prepare blended tube feeds for their child. We are, as I said, developing a resource guide to help families with this choice. Um, but we still will recommend that it's against best practice. But if you choose to do this, these are some things that can help. It is something that we will continue to provide their hen consumables. As mentioned before, no families are disadvantaged with either decision that they choose to go down, whichever path. But generally, we say pumps don't generally work with blended diet that just alarms because the consistency is too inadequate and the pumps themselves are so sensitive. We give general advice based on the Australian Guide to Healthy Eating. So we look at age or weight age, depending on the growth of the child. We would then suggest they look at the food groups, the serve sizes, and make sure that they're trying to include adequate amounts from all food groups. It is too time intense for us to be able to do a nutritional analysis of every family's preferred blend. 
Um, but at least if we can provide some kind of guidance, we might get some consistency from families and hopefully promote some nutritional adequacy as well. We would also be trying to use or guide families around adequate food safety preparation. And it might mean that we suggest doing an online food safety course or food handling course that you know, we have to do as kinder or parents and that sort of thing for um, working in cafeterias and all that sort of in canteens at school. So, you know, it might be something like that that we try to do to teach families the importance of food safety. But keeping in mind that this is for outpatients only, it's for the home setting um, and it's not something that can be considered for inpatients. So this is where we want to open it up to you guys and maybe invite Bernadette and John to come and join us um, to talk about who is responsible for the long-term nutritional outcomes of the child if the parents are leading the nutritional choices. So even if we are involved or we're not involved and the child's not thriving, whose responsibility is that? What are the views of the tube-fed individual in all of this? We often talk about that professionals, we talk about the parents, sometimes it's quite difficult to get an understanding of what the actual two-pen individual wants. And can RCH be a lead in this area or should we? So there's a lot of things to think about there, aren't there? Can I take a couple of questions or comments from the audience and then I'm going to ask John and Bernadette to comment. I'm just curious as to why blended diets, you require more energy to maintain weight compared to commercial. That one is probably still needing to be studied in more depth. Um, we, it's, it's something that's probably consistent among a couple of studies that we've got. It could be the thermic effect of food in yeah. general. There, there's energy required for digestibility and that isn't required as much in a formula that's already kind of broken down. So we think part of it has to do with that, but then the other part of it we still can't yet figure out. Mm. But it has been consistently up to 50% more, and that's part of one of the issues um, with blended tubes for children who have a lower sort of gastric reservoir than other... You know, if you're doing it in a 60-year-old adult, um, we can't necessarily give them twice as much volume or we can't water it down enough to get it thin enough to go through a tube because if we're doing that, then we're watering the nutrition down too. So it's feeding kids blended diet when they don't have particularly good gastric motility or they don't have good um, volume tolerance is really tricky. Yep. I um, just had a, a question. You said that you feel, I can see that difficult position that you're in as dietitians. You said you're not supported by the evidence. And I know all those guidelines that you put up sort of said we don't recommend it because of these risks, but it just struck me that has there really ever been a proper trial of dietitian-supported blended diet with proper like food hygiene standards? Because if it was shown that that was actually fine, um, then that argument kind of falls away. It just strikes me that a lot of the cons could be really minimised if, if you guys were able to be more involved. And, and I think it's only ethical, like, overall to actually make a trial of it to get the evidence, because I, I suspect there aren't a lot of robust references behind those recommendations of the big guidelines. Um. There's no doubt that there's definitely room for research in this area. Yeah. But I think what is tricky is, um, despite us providing all of the recipes under the sun and the... Um, and the guidance, what they do in the home can still vary from that. I guess that stands for children who are, who are being fed yep. across the Absolutely. board. Like, and that's you know, one of the parents yeah. throw is, but I can feed that child without your permission to yeah. do this. 
but why can't I do the same for that child? And then do you think perhaps if, if there was a more active taking on of it and perhaps some research and follow-up, that one, it would add to your evidence base, but you may then get families that will be happy to do like 50% or 75% with the neutrini or whatever and then they, if they can do that one meal a day and then like that's potentially the best... I agree. Right now, it's and like you have to make that choice. It's about that choice. relationship building again with the families that have kind of gone to ground and they've become sort of anti dietitians That um, we kind of lose the opportunity to have that negotiation with them. That it's not an all or nothing. You can do both, and it might suit your child to do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And yeah, you're right. We we will see an advantage in some of those children. I guess from an overall governing body perspective, they're still focusing at this end. The parents are focusing at that end and we kind of get stuck in the middle, but I think there's definitely room to move for us to help to bring those two sides together. So two more comments, then we'll go to Bernadette and John. Uh, in uh, over 50 years of clinical practice, I've been humbled by the uh, amount of the percentage of compliance with my instructions. So... <laughs> The fact that people don't do everything you say, I think, is the norm rather than the exception. I congratulate you on coming to support people who want to do things differently. Uh, and I think that's just because they don't follow what you tell them and what is obviously in the best interest of the child, because we really know that. Uh, just because they don't do that doesn't mean that you no longer have a duty of care. Your duty of care persists even when they do the reverse. So I congratulate you for coming to that uh, and, uh, and good luck with that. And I think that as to the responsibility, everyone's responsible. We, we all share that responsibility. Yep. Um, I'm just interested in a dietitian's perspective on this particular this question. Um, the couple of contentious cases I've been involved with recently have involved kids who are globally developmentally delayed with lots of medical problems, where the parents have gone off piste, I guess, off formula, um, partly for things that you've alluded to, like they think they can control seizures and reflux better, but also partly because they don't agree with the the weight chart and they think that for a child, their child who's not mobile and not, you know, active and otherwise busy, um, that the standard growth charts aren't right and I think then they also find it easier to manage their children when they're not quite so heavy and, you know, quite, quite so normally grown. Um, I was just interested in your perspective on that issue. I feel like... Like we work a lot with children that you've described in that setting and have done for a number of years. And I go to great lengths to explain growth to those families and what my aims are or what our aims are for that child. And it's not usually ever mainstream growth, but I'll use the mainstream charts as a comparison. But I'll also aim for adequate growth for that child. And I, I, I don't think any dietitian would settle for failing weight. When it comes to that sort of trying to keep their children light for, for lifting and those sorts of things. Again, it's probably not something that any of us would condone with access to equipment and that sort of thing and supports that families have now, especially through NDIS. Um, it, it shouldn't be as big a problem as it perhaps previously was 20 or so years ago. But we do have a lot of families in that position who have a lot of reflux medications, a lot of appearance for bowels, and they're choosing this diet because they feel that their child, their GI system, I suppose, copes with it better or they, have to, they can reduce their medications. 
But we do find because those families and, or those children have lower energy requirements because they are not mobile, away, apart from the high tone, high seizure type children, but the low tone, wheelchair bound, they do have lower energy requirements and they're the children that tend to do better on it because we're not aiming for such big volumes for those higher energy need type of children. So we do have families like that here at RCH and we do see them and we do monitor their growth. It's just up until now we haven't been able to support them with what they choose to give their children. But hopefully from now we will be able to do that. Thank you. So, John, can I ask you at this point, is there an ethical problem here? Have we already got the solution for children in the outpatient setting? How, what's your view? Lynn, you might be wondering why respiratory physicians here, so... Um, <laughs> I never wonder that, John. But I, I, love, I love food. <laughs> um, the respiratory uh, tract starts as an outpouching of the foregut. Uh, and in fact, but a lot of the patients I look after don't breathe very well and don't eat very well. So I look after a lot of patients on tube feeding. Um, when I was growing up, eating, trying to eat my mother's vegetables, I wish I had a tube. <laughs> Her recipe book is called Fifty Shades of Grey Vegetables. Uh, but uh, I'm also, I, I, I'm also, uh, like Rabbi Steinberg, uh, somewhat against the Hippocratic traditions. So I'm not just an anti-traditionalist, perhaps I'm an innovator. And uh, I think that forcing the tube feeding is high paternalism and high intrusion into the family where we don't necessarily need. And we've already indicated that we don't make the other children who come to the hospital, we don't make the other children uh, in the family uh, eat what we prescribe them uh, to eat. Uh, but we haven't said enough, I think, about what's the heart of this, and this is about initially demedicalisation of the children, but also then normalisation. And healthcare is about returning the children to home and community and normalising what they do. And feeding is such an important part of that, even if it's an odd blend of stuff that goes down the tube. And I think what's reported is that families will then blend the food, give it down the tube, but at the dinner table, and include their child in normal family activity. Uh, and that is, I think, fundamentally important to them. We can work out what's in the food because our kids with CF submit a three-day food diary and there's a forensic analysis of what's in, including macro and micronutrients. It's time consuming, but that shouldn't be, that's a hurdle that we can find a way uh, to jump over. And I think that parents are responsible until they do harm. So I know we're drawn in, but they're responsible until it's harmful. And I think we're at, victor, uh, at risk here of giving in to vague concerns, information. I mean, all the food we eat is contaminated. I mean, did anyone eat lunch here? It's full of bacteria. It was sitting there for half an hour before you got there. It multiplied times. But is anybody actually sick? And so we need to be careful about information and whether it translates uh, to evidence, notwithstanding good hygiene and preparation of the food. So I think we should be encouraging it. I think we should make a big effort to encourage it. And if it's time consuming to help, we should find a way to provide that time and provide that support. 
Thank you, John. Can I just frame a couple of questions that came into my mind, not so that anyone will answer them, just to put them there and then we'll pass on to Bernadette. So one of the things I'm thinking about is what's the value of the normalising? What does the child get out of it? So I have a really basic question about whether the child notices any difference. Um, but also it seems like it, in some ways it's a bit of risk-benefit thing. So if there is some risk, is it worth taking some risk for the benefits that the child gets? Is it worth taking some risk for the benefit that the parents get? So those are the questions that are in my mind at the moment. Bernadette, over to you. Um, I don't disagree with John that nurturing, caring for our children, feeding our children is one of the most basic parental activities that we engage in. And I also don't disagree that we have in fact medicalise that with children who are enterally fed. But for me, just putting blended food down a tube per se does not deliver the sorts of benefits that you talked about in terms of socialisation, sitting. Why is a child not able to sit at the dining room table with the rest of the family and have formula down their enteral tube? What difference does it make that it's blended food? And I have thought for quite some time that as health professionals we've actually done a pretty poor job of assisting families to, if a child does require enteral feeding for whatever reason, we've done a very poor job really of incorporating that activity into family life, making it as normal as it can possibly be and ensuring that all those elements of feeding your child and socialising and being part of the family unit etc are also incorporated, actively incorporated into the enteral feeding. We've looked at it as a medical procedure with a means, as a means to an end and I don't think we have spent near enough time actually working with the families about, yes, of course you want to give your child adequate nutrition, but what else is it about the feeding that you need to establish or you would like to accomplish with your child? So for me, it's not the blended food per se. It's what does, the, what does the blended food mean for parents? What's it delivering for parents in terms of their nurturing, their care, their control? And why have we not been able to incorporate those sorts of elements into enteral feeding with formula? Yeah. So that's a great question. Could we get the same benefits for the parents by a different method and not have the risks? Yeah, because I'm wondering if the motivation... I mean, you know, blended foods down tubes have been around for a while, but there is a growing thing. And, and I suppose I think to myself, what... Apart from believing, and possibly it's true, that, that there are some health benefits and um, well-being benefits being delivered to the child, a lot of those parental comments that I saw up on the screen to me say that that's, that's not what this is delivering for the family. What it's delivering for the family is that more normal experience, the feeling of being a real parent, feeding my child real food, just like the rest of the family. They're part of the family, they're not different, they're not being seen separately. I was a bit intrigued by the parent who felt that the child had to be enterally fed in her bed. Yeah. I don't understand why that was ever felt to be a need. Yeah. John, do you have one more comment? Then we can pass over to Heather to think about the inpatient setting. Just wanted, I, I just wanted to not disagree with Bernadette by disagreeing with her. No. That... There's something incredibly symbolic in the food and, uh, you know, sometimes we grab an up and go and throw it at the kids in the car on the way to school, but generally wouldn't consider that a proper breakfast. And so I think there's something in shopping, chopping, preparing, thinking about it and making it uh, and then hanging something up at the mealtime 
that is nearer, or it might be entirely the same meal, and wouldn't it be lovely at Christmas to mash up the turkey and cranberry sauce and, and have a Christmas blenderised food? And so I think there's some important symbolism in it that is very important to parents. The parent and the, and the relationship with the child, we're assuming the child, the discussions have been as if the child has minimal sentience, but plenty of the children have quite involved in, in what's going on and uh, probably... I can imagine, enjoy having what everyone else is having. So, since we've solved this easy bit about what to do at home, or almost solved it, not quite, we've still got some different views, can we just think about now the question that was raised, that you raised earlier, what about when that child comes into hospital? So what is ethically acceptable to do in that setting, especially if they've been having the blended food down the tube at home? So Heather, can I pass to you for that small question? So the inpatient setting is a completely different scenario, really. So RCH is classified as a class one food service facility, as are all hospitals, and that's because it's, um, the food is served and consumed by at-risk vulnerable children. It's the same with aged care as well. They're classed as a class one. And so we have a duty of care to operate under a HACCP food safety policy, um, which um, is a hazard analysis critical control points. So we have to you know, identify every step of food production where there's risk and put in a control point and monitoring records around each of those steps in order to um, pass our audits and continue in operation. We're also legislated by the Victorian Food Act and the Food Standards Act. And failure to comply to any of this is a loss of food licence, which means no longer being able to provide food to any patient. Um, it could be fines and worst case is imprisonment if it's um, intent um, um, with non-compliance. Um, we know that the blended foods are more microbiologically unsafe than any of the other diets we prepare just because of the nature of um, the, the moisture content, um, the nutrient content, but also the, the food processes and things we need to use in order to make them. And the other issue we have here is that it, these foods can't be stored in the board patient fridge. And that's not unique to blended food diets. That's actually part of our food from home policy. So um, when a patient's... Um, actually, I'll go on to talk about when they are admitted to hospital, what these options are. So we do tell them that bringing in their homemade blended foods or juices does not comply with our food safety program. Their option is to use a standard formula alternative and discuss with their dietitian what they're happy to use. Um, and that usually doesn't go down so well. The next choice would be something like the Nestle Isosource Mix Formula. Um, that's displayed down the bottom here. It does look like a formula, but it is based on blended food and it's available in Australia. And some families um, may consider using that. Or the other option is um, commercially prepared blended tube feeds like Nourish or Liquid Hope. Some of you may have heard of these. These are the packets up here. They're blended real foods. They come from America. Um, they're very expensive, largely because of the, um, having to import them. 
Um, but they are commercially prepared. They're vacuum sealed um, in, in individual portions. So once they're open, they're single use and discarded if they don't use all of it. And they're the things that tick the box for our food from home policy. But in order to do that, the parent has to provide them and administer the product. So they have to be the ones that actually um, give it. We say to the nursing staff not to, to be involved with the feeding. They do need to um, fill out a blenderised diet via enteral feeding tube declaration, which is a bit like a CAM policy. And the dietitian will obviously provide advice for target volumes and rates. And like I said, this isn't different from other... We're not biased here in terms of tube feed, you can't bring them in. We're actually saying to all families, you can't bring in um, your own foods from home and put them in the fridges um, and use them for patient use because of that food safety risk and, uh, and us being a class one facility. It won't pass our food auditors and we won't pass our um, audits that we get done. So basically, you can see our rules there. Um, we say to families that if they're going to bring food in from home or an external source, if they're going to get takeaway from one of our retail outlets, they can go get the food, bring it to the child, eat it immediately, tick the box, that's all fine. They can't go buy the food, then stick it in the fridge for four hours ready for the next meal and then reheat and give it. That wouldn't comply. Um, if they've uneaten portions, it needs to be discarded. Um, what they need to do is provide, if it's perishable, it has to be single-serve, sealed, unopened items that require refrigeration, and um, once they're opened, they're discarded. So um, these fridges are audited daily by the food service supervisor, and they do throw food out. So if we find blended food, that will get thrown out. If we find takeaway food, pizza, leftover ice cream, I don't know, whatever they find, if it's not compliant, they throw it out. Um, and this is why families aren't able to bring in blended food, because if it's in the fridge, it will end up getting thrown out and we need to find an alternative. So we've made allowances with the outpatients and happy to support the families. Um, but are we opening up a can of worms now with the inpatients um, where they want to continue using their blended diets but can't because of our food safety um, concerns that we have with our food safety program? And I'm hoping to open it up for further discussion around that. Got time for further discussion in this room, so that's a question you'll need to take away with yourselves. And Heather, I think you perfectly encapsulated where we're up to at the moment. Is this approach in the hospital ethically acceptable, given that the rules that apply to children who have uh, tube feeding are the same as the rules that apply to children who fed orally, but it doesn't allow a lot of room for choice for parents, does it? And that's where we're up to. So can you join with me in thanking our panel? Thank you for listening to this podcast from the team at Essential Ethics. This podcast was made possible by the generous support of the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre Auxiliary. The podcast was recorded at the Royal Children's Hospital. If you like the podcast, please leave us a review and tell your colleagues... If you would like to know more about the activities of the Children's Bioethics Centre, the Royal Children's Hospital, including our annual conference, visit our website at www.rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential Ethics. Be inspired. Be inspired.